Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast here on uh, the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. I have a very special guest today, uh, one Onika Mays. She's a certified meditation teacher and she does energy work. Uh, she's a teacher at the Independence Project's Meditation Teacher Training uh, and uh, teaches mindfulness to incarcerated people at Rikers Island Correctional Facility in uh, the Big Apple NYC. Uh, Onika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. Yeah, likewise. Um, um, by by the, can we say the pressures of destiny or karma or fate or random chance, I was pulled in last minute to fill in at a, a spiritual activism panel at Embodied Philosophy. And it, there was just such a synergy between all the speakers I found. We were just sort of a very different background. Mm-hmm. Um, very different content, but like totally same channel. Yeah. Uh, it was it was unbelievable, and I think it was one of my favorite parts of the whole conference. When you get people who are from very disparate backgrounds, but but coming together on this idea of humanity. But what I really appreciated was was the respect and this sense of of reverence. You didn't have people talking over one another, and there were these lovely pauses to to hear what everybody had to say. It was it was really beautiful. Yeah, fantastic. So for those of you listening, I uh, jumped at the chance to invite when you get to the Life Wisdom podcast. Uh, this podcast will be cross-posted to various um, applicable channels on the New Books Network. And as most of you probably know by now, um, um, I never have a script. I have a general idea, and it's all about the organic conversation in the moment. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about your work is without putting words in your mouth, there seems to be this dovetailing, this synergy between the spiritual and the social. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it really does. Um, and it's something I have to say that I don't think I was comfortable with for a really long time. Um, I think I think I grew up feeling very insecure and not really knowing my place in the world. And um, I always had a deep sense of curiosity which um, I credit to, you know, spirit, nature, and ancestors, and also deeply to my parents, who gave me a, a deep sense of curiosity. And as I went on my whole journey to end up at this place where, where I teach mindfulness practices to people who are incarcerated, um, along the way, I think I've picked up so many beautiful lessons and blessings from people, um, but didn't have really a traditional lineage. And I always felt very insecure in that. Um, And I think it's because I'm always trying to learn. I never, I I didn't allow myself to feel comfortable with the things that I had. But going inside and working with folks, um, I allowed myself just to be very open. And I think that's when I found this connection, this natural connection between what, what I know and what I don't know and being open to all of that. And I think that's where, you, I feel that sense of spirituality um, and and like social activism because there are so much there's so much that we have to lean into when it comes to liberation and freedom for all beings and we have to turn ourselves over to to a sense of faith um, which can be really scary and yet we have to do it anyway. So 
big picture. Uh, social activism, folks have a sense of what that means. Some are very much called to it. Um, some sort of, you know, allow others to do the bulk of the work. But nevertheless, it's sort of all of our responsibility to contribute to this, this culture and society that we're part of. Now, you and I, folks like you and I have internalized this, 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 the, the understanding that it comes from within and we do our own work and spirituality or personal growth, wisdom, if you will, is, is part of that process. But 30,000 foot view, um, what happens when social activism is done without that in your experience? I think when social activism, this is such a, I think such an important question and I'm glad, I'm glad that we're having it. Um, I think when we think about social activism without a sense of internal work, it becomes performative um, and empty and, um, and it's not lasting. It won't last because there's, it's not grounded in anything when, when it's, if it's all based without doing any internal work and it's external, um, it's, it, it's really temporary. And I think the only lasting change um, that we can count on and that we can rely on, especially in times of challenge or crisis, comes from within. Yeah, I have to say that my relationship with social activism is really interesting in that I've never been actively called to 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 any ism per se, and there's so many isms in which I belong to. It hasn't been my path, and it took me a long time to realize that I'm actually doing the work by doing what I do best and showing up as the exception in the room, and it's being done in 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 a in a, in a different manner, but just by doing what I can to um, to ripen whatever gifts I was given and share what I can, it gets done. But nevertheless. Um, more overt activistic work is required. But the one thing that I've noticed, you know, I like what you say about it being um, empty or not lasting. You know, it, it oftentimes people, there are lots of flaws and others, lots of flaws in society, and it's easy to focus on those and bypass what we have to work on in ourselves. And I think the sweet spot's working on both. The other thing I noticed over the years, just in my personal circles as a sort of armchair anthropologist, if you will, is oftentimes folks are called to social activism because of their own experiences and wounds. Let's just say, for example, I decided to be part of um, a group uh, where there was more representation of people of color, for example. And if I was still quite wounded about the various forms of othering and, and racism that I've endured, you know, that work may well just deepen my wounding. And I, I, I sometimes see folks called to this work uh, with very good intentions, and rather than ameliorating the world, they damage themselves in the process. You know, have you seen this as well? Oh, a lot. Um, you know, immediately I'm thinking of, um, you know, there are teachers who show up to do work inside jails. Like, you know, I first started volunteering before I started working sort of full-time in an, um, a, car- a car- carceral environment. and there was a teacher who was talking to me one day. I used to debrief with a lot of teachers after they went inside to see how classes were. And a teacher who was talking to me about, um, she, she got upset and not in an angry way, but she was frustrated that a lot of students that she was working with in the jail got up during Shavasana. 
She said, because that's the best part. They should stay for Shavasana. And, and, and I said gently, but they didn't want to. And such an important part of being inside jail is giving people options to choose of when to stay and when to be able to go on on their own. That's the liberation is in the choosing. And so when we try to force people to do something, we're taking a practice that's meant to liberate um, and, and we're actually causing more harm. And, and she didn't see it. it she, she didn't see it in that moment. It's funny, years later, we bumped into each other at a retreat and she told me she thought a lot about that conversation and things shifted. But I think when we come from a place of looking to fix um, rather than to serve, um, and when we're fixing, lots of times we are unconsciously trying to fix something in ourselves rather than serve ourselves. That's when I think we end up doing harm. And we have to see things as being um, already whole, but perhaps just needing service and compassion rather than saying, I can do this for you. Thank you. Um, you said something in passing earlier that I think might be worth um, touching on. Um, 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 it was along the lines of, you know, I, I integrate my spiritual work with my social justice work. Initially, there was a fair bit of insecurity about the spirituality because of this idea of, well, who am I? What tradition am I from? What am I grounded in? And, you know, I bet you so many members of our audience and people in this world who are spiritual seekers mm -hmm. experience that very same um, conundrum or tension. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, I teach primarily in sort of um, ancient Indian wisdom traditions. And so many folks sort of from yoga circuits, I have an online school called the School of Indian Wisdom. It's not overtly pertaining to yoga at all, but mm -hmm. various yoga teachers and studio owners and practitioners end up coming because they want to deepen their knowledge mm -hmm. of the tradition uh, from which yoga hails. And so often there is this, uh, there's this, um, there's this weariness of cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. but there's also this disorientation of what lineage do I belong to? Do I belong to a lineage? Can I belong to a lineage? Uh, can these teachings be used? And so I would love for you to say more about um, mm -hmm. that journey for you and yeah. how you were able to overcome it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think it starts in a, a in a couple of places. And I, I think me being um, black in the United States of America and not having a grounding um, outside of knowing that I come from African ancestry partially, right? Um, I think that's the first place of disconnection for me and my experience inside this inside this body, you know, on, on the land that I'm on. So I already felt a little untethered. And I don't think I could even articulate it in that sense as I was growing up. Um, and, I, and then I think um, my mother's an atheist. Um, so there was, and she, I call her the only practicing atheist I know, um, because there was always active conversation that there was no God. And, and the funny part is, is that she also, my parents both raised all of us, my, my siblings and myself, to be, to be very curious and to push back. Um, and I never believed her. I always, um, I was always looking at her with a little side. I'm like, I'm not sure about that. I, I hear you, mom. But I'm, even at six, um, I remember distinctly not, not really believing her, but nodding because I was six and she was my mother. And I think as I continued to grow and explore different things, like I went to church 
with friends when I was in high school and my mother was very angry about it, but I was curious. Um, and I found little, uh, lots of wisdom. I grew up in a neighborhood for, for a long time where I was surrounded by a lot of friends who were Jewish and went to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs. And I think because I didn't have a tradition in the church um, and I, I couldn't trace my roots, roots back to a particular country in Africa, um, I was always looking for these pieces. And because you grow up in the United States of America and you're told like, oh, it's a melting pot, I felt okay being able to say, these. I can take this and I can take this and I can take this experience because that's what it means. And in my understanding and my pie in the sky view of being an American, it's, it's being allowed to, to listen to these to these different pieces of tradition, as long as you came from a place of, of true openness and curiosity and not a sense of trying to hoard and take. Um, and I think that's why I feel comfortable now saying like, I've studied some Buddhism. Um, I'm, I've studied some Hinduism and, and my yoga, you know, my yoga studies took me in a, in a place, my massage therapy took me down a path of Chinese medicine. Um, and, and I think that's why I can feel comfortable. And I would encourage other people, even if you know what your lineages are, right? Even if you are connected to them, we can allow ourselves to be a little untethered and to be a little curious. And as long as we come from that place, um, it's a beautiful thing to have all of these little pieces from everywhere around the world. You know, that really resonates. Um, part of why this is called the Life Wisdom Podcast and not, uh, you know, um, the Hindu studies or the Christian theology or, or this, uh, you know, even the spirituality, because gosh, we're going to get too woo-woo on the New Book Network. But it's called, it's called the Life Wisdom Podcast <laughs> because we all have an understanding of this thing called life mm -hmm. and wisdom is self-evident when you're given sage counsel you don't need any sort of uh, metric or instrument to measure it you yeah. feel the power of wisdom flow through you mm -hmm. you understand it lands in you it comes through that person mm -hmm. it lands in you and it changes your behavior it changes your thoughts yeah. and i just fa fascinating experience of being very rationalistic but intuitively spiritual and then be doing religious studies and studying the world's religions. And then of course, what do I land on as my primary mode of practice? The very, you know, the very practice to tell from my culture, you uh -huh. know, I grew up in a particularly religious home and I'm actually double diasporic because my family's from the West Indies. So you mm -hmm. have, as you say, you have that, you have that sort of genetic um, connection to a land, to a culture that's severed mm -hmm. and there's trauma, the trauma hasn't, been resolved after generations and so every person has to figure out how to do that on their own mm -hmm. um but wisdom to me is um there is no civilization culture person position that has monopoly on wisdom that's what's so great that mm -hmm. uh, the uber driver or the barista could be your guru for that day and they most often are without even trying to be um, and, and that's what I love about this, the cross-pollination of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not you hail from a specific religious tradition or you are um, an authority or a lineage holder, nevertheless, gone are the days when there's you know, our tribe and the rest of the world. Nevertheless, surely there's, 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 there, there are dishes on the buffet that you can benefit from and enjoy that may not be, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's I love the conversation, I really do. 
I want to ask you about um, your calling or what I perceive as your calling to work with the incarcerated. Tell us more about that. Like, sort of, what, why do you do so? Why is that so important to you? How did you get into that work? I think um, I, I, I don't have, you know, some some story where I feel like I, I, I felt myself pulled to go to a jail and say, I'm going to teach yoga to folks in, in jail. Um, it's really not that interesting. I was talking to my cousin um, after I did my yoga teacher training and I was saying I was really lucky that I was teaching in so many places. As soon as I became a yoga teacher, which does not happen, I was teaching you know, like 20 classes a week. So I was able just to really dive in. And because I felt so blessed with that, I wanted to, to serve and, and to give back with, with the teaching. And she said to me, you should teach in jail. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. Like that. So that is very, that is exactly how it happened. So it's, it's not, um, it's not some spiritual revelation. Uh, and I wish I had it like a sexier story, but that was it. So, so I went to the Google and uh, looked for organizations that were doing jail at Rikers. And, and I hooked up with this nonprofit. And the, the first day that I was supposed to meet the founder of the nonprofit to go into Rikers, um, we got our dates mixed up and, and she had a meeting. And so I'm standing on Rikers Island, this, this one of the most notorious jails in the country. And um, she said, I'm so sorry, you know, I, I can't be there today. And I said, well, can I just go by myself and go, go meet our students? And she was like, are you sure? And so I said, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to do it by myself anyway. So let me just go. So I hop on a bus. I get to get to the jail. It's a, it's a big process to go inside to, to a jail. I pass through several security checkpoints and, and I find myself wandering, um, you know, through the jail to go find um, the students that I'm going to teach. And I remember as soon as I walked into the housing area, um, a sense of calm settled over me and I kind of knew I was supposed to be here. Um, be there. And and I think that's when the calling happened. But all, up until that point, it was just like, oh, this is something that I should do. My grandparents were activists. My my parents are socially active. So it, it, it wasn't un, unusual for me to think that I would want to go serve. But as, as soon as I landed in this idea and seeing all of these, um, I was in the women's jail, all of these women, most of whom were black and brown, um, and looking at me curiously as a black yoga teacher, because at the time there weren't a lot, a lot of black yoga teachers. And, you know, I, I'm not very skinny or tall or white or blonde, which in the in the in the U.S., which is what yoga teachers look like. Right? Um, uh, I can't resist. Me neither, honey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So here I am. And they're like, you're a yoga teacher, right? And I had to like stop from getting offended. Like, yes, I can teach yoga. Thank you very much. Um, but instantly there was a camaraderie because I felt comfortable in my skin. And, and, and it, when you're in jail, sniff, insecurity is sniffed out and eaten up instantly, right? There, there's no one likes anybody who's not authentic because we're already in such a terrible situation. And and just from that moment, I just knew like, oh, I'm going to kind of do this for the rest of my life in some way, shape or form. Fascinating. Um, it, it's so interesting to me, actually, that you found this niche where you're sharing your your energy, your wisdom, your practices with the incarcerated. Mm -hmm. it, does it have to do with sort of a vision of rehabilitation or does it have to do with a different vision of what it means to be in prison? Or, or can you say a bit about that? I would say it's about 
I think disrupting um, an oppressive system with love. Um, coming from you know folks who were politically active in this uh, this idea of the word fighting and protest, which I grew up with, but never one hundred percent felt settled inside me. Um, it's funny, I'm even reluctant to, to, to say those words out loud because when I think of activism, we think of the word fighting and pushback. But it was never, that was never sort of my politic. I, I always loved, always. Um, I am the unusual one in my family who is very affectionate um, and who likes, who's, who likes to show all of her emotions. And so when I go inside jail, I do believe the way that we can disrupt oppression is with love. When we can look at other people, whether it's an officer, whether it's a person who's incarcerated and you can see them and say, I love you. Um, that brings walls tumbling down. And I think that's, that is why I think the work is powerful. And because it, it comes in a form of exchange that is, I think, honest and true and not, and not, um, and not from a place of power or dominance, um, that the the work works. And I don't think it's around rehabilitation. I do think that our systems that we have here in the United States that center around punishment rather than promise don't help. I think we do need to see people where they are. Where they are. I think early intervention is is the best prevention. But if that does that sense that hasn't happened. I think being compassionate with people and understanding that people are more than the worst thing that they've done or been judged for, right? And when we can be non-judgmental and say, yes, you did this and I see you, because um, we've all done that. We've, we've, we've all shamed ourselves. So there's a shared humanity there. Yeah, there's so many thoughts that come to mind as I hear you speak. Um and, and perhaps unsurprisingly, this is our second conversation, both of which have been recorded. Um, there's so many parallels in that, oh boy, do I ever want to affect change as I go through this world, you know, before I'm warm food again, or ideally for the last time. Mm -hmm. But but it's, it's um, in my mind, there are these two Sanskrit words that are fancy words for just um, union and separation, some yoga and the yoga. Mm -hmm. And it's clear to me that some people are overarchingly here for the yoga separation, mm -hmm. however they use that, who knows? And some people are here for some yoga, bringing together. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the great um, driving forces of my life to bring together. And in so doing, mm -hmm. inadvertently or sort of by osmosis, confront the, the folks who would tear us asunder. And that is a kind of fighting that really reminds me of this bizarre, paradoxical, clever, um, uh, um, sophistic uh, advice that Krishna gives to Arjuna. You know, like, go, go, like, yes, be a soldier with your, with your hands and your feet. Yes. Be a sage with your heart. Be a sage with your mind. Be contented. You're just an instrument of my leela. Mm -hmm. Execute your, your, your dharma, discharge your dharma, your duty. Mm -hmm. But... Yes, be the sage uh, in the inner world. And I find it so fascinating. If I'm, I find that to be an analog of what you're saying in terms of, yes, you, you're an activist. Yes, there is a fight to be fought, but you're not a fighter in the overt sense. In that, you, in that from what I'm picking up from what you're saying is that 
you your consciousness is in a spirit of friendliness and compassion mm -hmm. and that doesn't shift ideally yes and raj it it took me a long time to admit that out loud i was really afraid to say that out loud for for many years it's really only been over the past six years or so that i could actually articulate it in such a way i felt like even saying that i moved from a place of friendliness and love was a betrayal in a lot of ways to 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 certain movements um and it it felt like weakness um it felt like giving up it felt like spiritual bypass selling out yeah and and yet even saying that felt like selling out to me and so for many years i sold out to the idea of liberation as a fight at the expense of my own spirit but then got to a place where oh i can't this is not sustainable <laughs> it is not sustainable you know you there's so so much there one is that for you to feel uh ashamed or uncomfortable with expressing this bespeaks the ethos uh um 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 uh, the ethos of of fighting the fight mm -hmm. is so important and you're so caught up in the war that sometimes people forget we are fighting to secure peace mm -hmm. right yeah. the fighting is a an intermediary but you're so caught up in the attitude and the indignation and the injustice and the pain mm -hmm. and how could peace come from pain exactly you know and so there's, there's that but there's also this other really important thing that i that i kind of pick up i wanted to touch on it before you know this idea of well i have a lineage i don't have a lineage i uh, sort of uh, i i sample from the buffet of life um etc 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 you know it's my deep conviction from experience of self and others that there is profound wisdom in every single human spirit mm -hmm. that it's that that of course the teachings and the tools and the lineages are of profound importance mm -hmm. but they point you to the the wisdom that abides within all people mm -hmm. they point you and when you're connected with that mm -hmm. all it is is that you're able to hear the conscience much more clearer than some some days you know it's a kind of your, your conscience is kind of like tied up in the trunk of the car <laughs> and some days it's driving and singing along to its favorite song on, yeah. on the radio but but it's just that's what it is isn't it isn't that the spiritual heritage or legacy isn't it just turning into your own god-given wisdom god's given wisdom goddess given wisdom whatever does it for you and understanding that my soul's power to love mm -hmm. is is uh, it, it's a tsunami Mm -hmm. Right compared to the compared to the the, the the thunderstorms you want to create, this is a tsunami, and it's cheesy seeming and impractical. Mm -hmm. But folks don't understand that love is not a mundane thing. Not at all. It's I extraordinarily that. transformative. That that is what I love about the work that I do in jail. That in this impossibly violent oppressive environment that that love can actually exist there and not just exist there like you know like that rose growing through concrete 
but um, it can thrive. It can thrive. And, and the most unlikely of places and, and, and that wisdom that you were talking about coming from all different kinds of people. I do think that I get wisdom every day when, when I go to work. Um, and not everybody who works there believes what I believe, right? Like, frankly, I think most people don't think the way that I think who work there and that's okay. Right. That it's, that's okay. But, um, I do find a lot of wisdom and I do find a lot of love. And I think because, and, and in particular, my, my two peers who I work with in this wellness program have the same kind of politics. So there are people who deeply appreciate and connect with with the love that's there and so in turn bring it. Whether it's staff, whether it's officers, or whether it's people who are incarcerated, which that is the power and the trans the transformative power of love, right? When you let it thrive and you nurture it and you tend to it, it can start to spread out in the most unlikely of places. And 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 I think eventually bring walls tumbling down. Mm. Can you say a word about um, about self-care in such situations? Yeah, <laughs> I could say lots of words about it. But like vicarious trauma was something that I underestimated when I started doing this work. And, um, and I think ego didn't want to let me, my, an overarching sense of ego um, or pride, I should say, not ego, pride wouldn't let me um, admit that I might feel some things from doing this work. So I kept up with my general practices, right? Like prayer and meditation and physical movement. Um, but I didn't understand that it would impact me a lot more than that. And I would have to do extra things. Um, and then I felt a sense of guilt feeling what I felt because I would feel all of these feelings and still say to myself, yeah, but I'm not in jail. I'm home. I get to go home every day. So I shouldn't feel this way. I should be okay feeling this because I'm still free. Um, and I had to overcome a lot of that. And fortunately, I have a network of friends who also do similar work and practitioners who are, um, you know, well-versed in trauma that I could talk to to help me process some of this um, and then help me create practices on any given day that help me deal with and grieve around um, the self-care that I need to do and the trauma that I feel and hold and, and need to let go and nurture and, and, and shift and transform. But it, it's different on any given day and was very heavy during the pandemic when I couldn't go in and I was so worried. Um, about people inside and everybody inside who had to be there. And it, it, it felt like COVID was just this entity ripping through there and people were literally trapped and I couldn't go in and dealing with that. But it's such an, I think it's so important for anybody who works with a population um, who was marginalized or traumatized, you have to take care of yourself. We're connected, right? We're, we're connected. Um, so then you'd say there's a connection between collective care and self-care. Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, self-care is collective care and collective care is self-care. It seems to me you have an attitude uh, or an approach to your students, uh, your incarcerated students, that might be uh, fairly different from the attitude that perhaps most hold towards them. 
say a bit about that? Yeah, I think my uh, my approach comes from a place of respect and service. Um, and there's a lot of judgment you find in jail uh, at all different levels. Um, it's met with a lot of skepticism at first with some folks. People work with me a lot in a one-on-one environment. And so when I I am genuinely asking questions about how people are sleeping or how they're feeling um, and what might work for them with the work that we're going to do, whether it's just a little bit of talking before a movement or, or meditation. You know, a lot of people look at me sideways because they're not quite sure where I'm coming from. So it, it sometimes it takes a few sessions of, of folks coming to work with me before they, um, before they trust me. And I'm okay with that. And, and, uh, and I'm deeply okay with that. And when, when I, when I show up without judgment, that's also met with skepticism because there is so much judgment at every level, um, in a jail. Um, and it takes a lot, it's a lot of trust building. Um, and, and that's the inner work. I think you have to do a lot of inner work because you're confronted with lots of things when you work and work in that kind of environment with, with lots of horror, lots of, you know, things that people have done that they're not proud of. Um, there's, there's times too, when there's injustice that you're, that you're bearing witness to. Um, and you could just numb out to all of it. It it could be a lot easier just to numb out in the short term. That's, that's like probably the easiest thing to do, but long-term I think it causes more harm. Um, and I think that's where the, the respect comes in. Like if, if you understand that this liberation is a long game, um, you need to play the long game of showing up uh, without judgment all of the time. In terms of the the the, the, the uh, pearls of wisdom that have come to you, which I'm sure there have been many over the years through this work, what might you like to share with others and or call others to 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 do? I think it's so important and it sounds so easy, but if people could take simply a minute a day to sit with themselves and be okay with whatever they discover and just to sit with that, the the transformation that could take place, um, I do think could heal the world. And I know that sounds really hokey and trite and I still believe it. And, And I think that's, that's one thing I would love to see happen. I would also love for folks to, to really investigate and understand what happens to people when they go to jail or they get punished, whether it's in a school setting. What are the systems that are in place to hold people accountable and to explore those? You know, what are children going through in school um, when they get punished? What happens to people when they get out of jail and to look for those organizations locally and to support them, whether it's with your time, whether it's with funds, whether it's just sharing with other people the things that you've learned. The less people are invisible and the more that we see them, the more that we can support each other. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, It seems to me that, you know, there are folks that are up to no good, whether in jail or not in jail or Mm -hmm. uh, on their way to jail or or who will evade jail for the rest of their days. Mm -hmm. And there are people, uh, all of us are flawed. There are people who have made egregious mistakes. Mm 
and they really would harness and benefit from some support to restore themselves to the kind of life that they would have liked to have mm-hmm. without that misstep or without yeah. that lesson, shall we say, to be learned. Um, yeah, it, it's um, it's not black and white, right? That's why I say there are people who you may want to bypass because they're just up to no good, whether they've been incarcerated or not. And there's people who you may want to reach out to, whether they've been incarcerated or not. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it seems to be... Could you say a bit about black and white thinking or maybe more complex ways of approaching things? Yeah. I used to see things in black and white when I first started doing this work. I saw jail and the officers who work there as kind of the bad people and the people who were incarcerated as the good people. I had these judgments and it was really reductive to think that way uh, because it's not. There are officers who are unbelievably compassionate And there are people who are incarcerated who are unbelievably compassionate. And it's never just black and white. We are all, and I do believe that we are all just trying to do the best that we can on any given day with the tools that we have and the experiences that we've had. And when we can appreciate that, that is when we, I think we tap into compassion. And I think that's what I had to learn to do. And I had to tap into it for myself. So I could start to see it in other people. And it, it, it makes life, I think, a little bit more um, challenging and a lot more interesting um, than just seeing as one group over there and one group over there. Well, this really brings us back to the first full circle to the need to, to engage in personal growth, personal inquiry, personal examination, personal evolution especially when one is um, aiming to, um, to implement uh, social justice or to change the landscape in some sense, because then one is able to A, be a model for others, and B, one uh, sidesteps the pitfalls of sort of uh, good guy, bad guy kind of thinking, where it might be more complex, and one isn't possessed by this, by this dichotomy so that you can see each person as a person, yes. not as an emissary of whatever ism that's in your brain, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, this has been a, a really enjoyable conversation. Um, before we close for today, um, um, uh, actually, I'll put these all in, in the podcast notes in terms of how folks can reach out to you, uh, but uh, onikamaze.com, uh, Instagram and Twitter at onikamaze. Uh, there's a great interview that you've done with uh, the Chitheads podcast that embodies philosophy. I'll put all that in the podcast notes so folks will have access to it. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share about your work and or ask of me before we close for the day? You know, I want to thank you for this conversation. Um, it's really been a joy. And um, it's it's lovely when when you meet people and and understand that that connection happens, right. And there's something there to explore. And I would encourage people to, to be able to do that, right. This is literally our second time talking. Um, And there's such richness there. And I think we all have um, that intuitive wisdom that when we bump into people along, along our journey, that we think that there might be something more to explore. So 
So do that, folks. Find your Raj and have those conversations. <laughs> right. but, Birds of a feather um, walk together. You your know, one thing are like, out there. So, yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I find myself um, talking to with students, mainly at the school that I teach at, um, uh, we've had some difficult conversations about teachers, uh, toxic teachers, false teachers, false schools, exploitations in the yoga community and the larger Indian spirituality movements. And of course, you know, it's a bad press that stays in people's minds. And then once you've been uh, uh, abused in various ways, I mean, what do you do? Do you maintain the practices? Do you not? We've had all these conversations and one of the things that I keep landing on, it's really difficult to do because instinctively as as homo sapiens, as, as mammals, we're gonna look around and hey, this looks like us, this is where we belong. This doesn't look like us, this is different, this is a different tribe, this is a different species, right? But if we can pay attention to what's beneath the packaging and connect with what I think of as the vasana, the habits, someone may, Birds of a feather is a great, uh, it's an excellent example of the ideas there, but it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, because that person may have very different feathers than you, but you can fly with that person. And it's looking past the gender, the orientation, the ethnicity, the lineage, and finding a way to assess the person by their character, like looking deeper. And that way, you know, um, I'm just going to use an example. I may know a person who might be trained, who might be in brown skin, who might be practicing Hindu, and really has no bloody idea what the teachings are saying. It's self-evident from the behavior. Where another person might be born in the Bible Belt of America, having studied yoga, and is grappling with it. They may be in a white skin, and they may really grok the teachings in a deep and powerful way. And at first glance, right? You'd say, oh, well, that, you know, that's that, that's that. So I think, um, I really think folks need to find a way just to interrupt this kind of pattern of being fooled by the package of what they're presented with and, and just hold some space for the person to present who they are to you, right? But I've, I've uh, pontificated enough for one day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's this you when you were talking, there's this Michelle and Dege Ocello song, um, one of my favorite singer songwriters, and 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 one of her um and so one of the, the lyrics in one of her songs that she talks about um, she's talking about sort of the black experience and that you have to question things and she says just because he wears a kufi doesn't mean that he's right, and so you do have to be aware of the packaging that that folks come in and, and maybe look underneath. I think that's so important. And I think you brought us right full circle to how we met, right, on that panel discussion. Um, we all looked very different, you know, on, on that, on that, those Zoom screens. And yet, and, and yet there is a lot of synergy there. There you go. Um, I think we should end with that. Um, <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for uh, appearing on the Life Wisdom Podcast today. It was a, such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. You're most welcome. Um, for those of you who've been listening, for those of you who have been listening, I'm so tongue-tied after this podcast. Um, we have been speaking with uh, uh, Onika Mays, 
who does some fascinating work bringing uh, yoga and mindfulness and really wisdom um, to the uh, community of students who are incarcerated at Rikers, among other places. All of Onika's links are in the podcast notes. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating the ways in which you may touch another person's life, however big or small. Take care.